Caesar was dead. He had bled out on the floor of the Senate after being stabbed by men who had sworn a loyalty oath to him. And that death was monumental because it left such a sizable power vacuum at the center of Rome. The breath of the city itself had gone out. A sense of indecision, a foreboding, even fear must have spread throughout the city, kind of like a virus. People no doubt began to whisper and to wonder. And that's what we're talking about today. Who was left alive and who was ready to take power? There was the drunkard and the derelict Mark Antony. He actually held official power, but would anybody follow him? There was also Caesar's general, Lepidus. Lepidus had an army inside the city of Rome, but did he have the guts to use it? Then there were the assassins themselves, who still in many cases had their daggers in their hands as they marched through the city of Rome. But did they really expect to revive the Republic after committing such a grisly murder? I'm Professor Colin Elliott, and this is the Pax Romana Podcast. Episode 2, Rome's Great Reset. I'd like to begin today by imagining a conversation in ancient Rome late in the afternoon on March 15th, 44 BC. It's now been discovered that Caesar has died and people in the city begin to talk, to whisper, probably thousands of quiet conversations across the city of Rome. We're engaged in a kind of decentralized crash course on Roman politics. So who were the names that would have been mentioned? Well, the first name was probably Lepidus. Lepidus was Caesar's second in command. Each Roman dictator, and Caesar, as you remember, was a dictator, was allowed to appoint a lieutenant or a second in command, a representative. This person was called the master of horse. Now, (laughs) why the Romans used this odd title is really anybody's guess, but it likely had its origins in the military of the pre-Republican monarchy. This was an era that was now more than 450 years in Rome's ancient and really quasi-mythological past. But Lepidus's power was not merely because he had served as Caesar's master of horse. It wasn't because he had this odd title or even because he was attached to Caesar. Lepidus was a powerful man in his own right. He had held every political office that Caesar had held, of course, with the exception of dictator. And additionally, he had overseen Rome's mint. He currently served as governor of the wealthy province of nearer Spain. Rome broke up Spain into further Spain and nearer Spain. And Lepidus was governor of nearer Spain. And then Lepidus also commanded several Roman legions, perhaps as many as 10,000 men. And Lepidus hadn't left for Spain yet. He was still in Rome. So there were probably a lot of whispers in the Roman streets that Caesar's second in command had his soldiers stationed in the Field of Mars, which was just outside of Rome's walls. The Field of Mars was the place where Roman armies typically marshaled for war against a foreign threat. The question would be, who was Lepidus planning to fight right now? Well, Lepidus's most likely targets were, of course, Caesar's assassins. And where were they? 
Well, after murdering Caesar, the conspirators thought to transform into liberators. In their eyes, Caesar was a tyrant who deserved his death. That's exactly what Cicero said in episode one, if you'll remember. Brutus was one of the leaders of the conspiracy against Caesar. He gave a triumphant speech in the Roman Forum not long after Caesar's murder. Brutus held a position in the city. He was the urban praetor. The urban praetor was one of the most senior magistrates in the city. The power of the urban praetor was only eclipsed by the two consuls. And Caesar was one of those consuls, and Mark Antony was the other. So Brutus, in a sense, could be thought of almost as a third in command. But ironically, it was Caesar who appointed Brutus to that position. Normally, that's an elected position, but Caesar had made Brutus urban praetor. And Brutus was now giving a speech in the forum after killing his former patron, denouncing Caesar as a would-be king and a tyrant. And even then, as he was doing it, Lepidus may have been moving his soldiers into the city, gradually surrounding the forum. Some of the people that gathered to hear Brutus speak and then other assassins in turn probably cheered and thought that the Republic had been liberated, but it was unmistakable to many of them as well that many of the other senators and certainly the soldiers that were streaming into the city and many of the general population loved Caesar loved him more than they loved their new supposed liberty. The assassins then turned to one of the oldest tricks in the book when it was clear that not everybody was excited. They started passing out bribes. Now, the sources are unclear about whether the assassins passed out real money or they gave out goods or maybe just hopeful promises. But the Greek historian Appian tells us this, quote, the assassins did not perceive that they were counting on two incompatible things, namely, that people could be lovers of liberty and bribe-takers at the same time. That's Appian's Civil War. The crowd took what the assassins were offering, but at the same time, they didn't seem wildly enthusiastic about the message itself. And what Appian tells us is that they simply called for peace. They wanted everybody to be calm. They wanted no further violence in the city. And so as March 15th wore on into evening, Brutus and Cassius and the other conspirators marched with their daggers drawn away from the forum and towards the Capitoline Hill. This is a smaller hill, but it is rocky and it is a great place to mount a defense if worst came to worst. And Lepidus decided to use that army that was slowly filtering into the city streets. But neither Brutus nor the conspirators nor even Lepidus were legally in charge. So all of these people that I have mentioned may have had influence, but technically they were not in the most important position of power. Because if Caesar was no longer dictator, then Lepidus was no longer master of horse. So who was in charge? Well, I mentioned that Brutus was urban praetor, but above him were two consuls. The Romans normally elected two consuls each year to co-lead the Republic. From 49 BC onward, one of those would always be Caesar. Yes, he would be dictator and consul at exactly the same time. This is a guy who does not mind having extra titles and positions, if there's anything that you have learned thus far. The second consul tended to rotate among Caesar's loyal friends. And in 44 BC, the position fell to Mark Antony. 
Antony had been appointed to lead several of Caesar's legions back when Caesar held that 10-year governorship of Gaul. And Antony had also been Caesar's man in Rome just before Caesar took his army across the Rubicon in early 49 BC. But Antony came with some baggage. He had a reputation as a drunkard and a womanizer, maybe much worse. He supposedly even committed a few murders when he was younger. This was not a very savory individual. And when Caesar became dictator, Mark Antony actually fell back into some of his old habits. And so scandal after scandal rocked Rome, and Antony seemed to be in the middle of some of those scandals. There's even a rumor that Antony was approached to join a coup against Caesar. Not the one that brought him down, but an earlier coup. But the reeling Antony chose to stay loyal. So despite Antony's character flaws, Caesar had ended up finding a use for him as his co-consul in 44 BC. But now with Caesar dead, Antony held formal power all by himself. Lepidus, Brutus, and Mark Antony, each holding a form of power. Lepidus had his legions, Brutus, the conspirators, and the republicans, and Mark Antony held the consulship all by himself. So what happened? Antony, as consul, refused to declare martial law. Lepidus's legions, therefore, were prohibited from acting. The conspirators on the Capitol Hill would not have to deal with a full frontal assault. Instead, everyone laid their weapons down, and they talked. By March 17th, just 48 hours after the assassination of Caesar, Lepidus, Antony, and the conspirators reached a deal. What was it that brought everybody to the table? Well, Brutus and the rest of Caesar's killers needed the Senate to recognize Caesar as a tyrant. If Caesar's reign was legitimate, then they were murderers, fit to be beheaded or more likely tossed off the cliff, known as the Tarpeian Rock, to die a traitor's death. But if Caesar was a tyrant, then Brutus and his friends on the Senate had liberated the Republic. They were heroes. Caesar's legacy would be condemned, all his acts and appointments would be nullified. And that last point was the rub. Antony himself delivered the news in the Senate. This is what he said, quote, Those who are asking for a vote on the character of Caesar must first know that if he was a magistrate and if he was an elected ruler of the state, all his acts and decrees will remain in full force. But if it is decided that he usurped the government by violence, his body should be cast out unburied and all his acts annulled. These acts, to speak briefly, embrace the whole earth and sea and most of them will stand whether we like them or not. Almost all of us have held office under Caesar or do so still, having been chosen thus by him or will do so soon, having been designated in advance by him. For as you know, he had disposed of the city offices, the yearly magistracies, and the command of provinces and armies for five years. If you are willing to resign these offices, for this is entirely in your power, I will put that question to you first. That's Mark Antony's speech as recorded in Appian's Civil Wars. What was Antony doing? He was telling these men that if they voted to condemn Caesar, they condemned their own careers too. And for not the last time in history, the most preachy, 
virtue signaling politicians were the very first to abandon their so-called principles to protect their personal interest. Mark Antony hit those guys where it hurt. After all, Brutus was urban praetor because Caesar had appointed him. Mark Antony was consul because Caesar had appointed him. Perhaps more than half of the men in the room owed their current or future positions to Caesar. And as Antony said, Caesar had already laid out office holders for several years in advance. Many of Rome's senators, even some that had killed Caesar with their own daggers, could not undo Caesar's actions without undoing their own careers. And Caesar had also promised both land and money to his legions. No, no one was prepared to renege on promises like that made to thousands of men with armor and weapons and a very recent history of fighting against their own countrymen. These were the men that marched on Rome. Of course, they would happily march on the Senate if they withheld Caesar's promised payments to them. So instead of declaring Caesar a tyrant, they invented one of the most incoherent compromises in political history. Caesar's reign was declared legitimate, but at the same time, his killers were not to be prosecuted for murder. It would almost be like Caesar died of natural causes on the Senate floor and not from a fury of dagger wounds delivered by Brutus and the conspirators. There was no way, of course, to prevent Lepidus from losing his position as master of horse. Without the dictatorship, there was no master of horse. But Caesar, the definitely not a tyrant Caesar, the definitely also not murdered Caesar, was somehow dead. And so his high priesthood, which I mentioned last time, the position of Pontifex Maximus, was now available for Lepidus to have as a kind of consolation prize. And then Mark Antony went ahead and abolished the office of dictator itself, once and for all. So any man who claimed the dictatorship again would be executed. This was Rome's great reset. Rome's Republic had apparently survived the greatest test in its nearly 500-year history. All that was left was to just wrap up the formal matters to process Caesar's death. His will was to be read on March 19th. His funeral was going to be held the next day on March 20th. And these matters should have brought the age of Caesar to a quiet end. In fact, what happened was more wild than anybody could have imagined. It began on March 19th four days after Caesar's murder, when Caesar's will was unsealed and read in front of Mark Antony, Lepidus, members of the Senate, perhaps even a public audience. This reading was significant because the will would confer legal rights to Caesar's vast wealth and also his name. Caesar did not have a legitimate son alive. He had a bastard born of Cleopatra in Egypt and Roman law and custom prohibited that boy from inheriting from Caesar, both in terms of wealth and Caesar's name. So in the absence of a natural heir, Caesar could name anyone in his will. But who among his loyal generals would it be? For a man with proven loyalty, Lepidus, Antony, and others were probably on pins and needles as the document was unfurled and then read. Gradually, it must have become clear that Caesar indeed would name an heir, and it would be Gaius Octavius? 
Gaius Octavius, that's Caesar's 19-year-old grandnephew. He wasn't even in the city of Rome. He had had very little military experience. His father was the first in his family to be in the Senate, so not a well-pedigreed individual. Now, it's true that if people were really paying attention, Caesar had evidently taken Octavian under his wing during the last few years of his life. But I'm sure that for many that attended the reading of Caesar's will, there were a lot of jaws dropped onto that floor when Octavian was announced as Caesar's heir. Antony almost certainly would have been shocked, probably angry. Antony had a reasonable expectation that he would have been named heir. And if Antony had plans to make a play to follow Caesar into some form of absolute power, he'd have to revise those plans dramatically. And as we'll see next time, Antony came up with a brilliant opening move. It was on March 20th that Antony would give a eulogy that no Roman, and indeed the entire world, would forget. A eulogy that set fire to the compromise that he himself had just helped secure. A eulogy that would, in the end, inflame the passions of a riotous mob in the capital and set in motion a chain of events that would culminate with Rome being ruled by its first emperor. We'll talk about that next time on the Pax Romana podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pax Romana podcast. For more information, including a list of primary sources and further reading, check the show notes. Music by Red Productions and Exeter. Follow Dr. Colin Elliott on X at ProfCPE or email colin at paxromanapodcast.com. Listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just about anywhere podcasts are available. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Pax Romana Podcast.